0: When Simon Chapel grew up on Auckland's North Shore in the 1970s, Devonport Borough Council had been in charge for around 90 years,
1: a very small council area which effectively got abolished in the 80s as the government built up larger and larger local organisations. An
0: 1897 newspaper clipping details a meeting where councillors talked about the state of the footpaths, building a new gymnasium, and striking a rate of one shilling in the pound on the rateable value of properties. So the same old stuff we hear about today, really. But when it was scrapped in the 80s, the people of the seaside suburb were not happy. You know, the
1: rhetoric is absolutely echoed with, you know, some of the pushback on the decentralisation. Now, much of the local pushback for that reform, people feeling that they had local ownership, that they had local voice and they had local control. And the consequence was loss of an important pillar. Of the local community.
0: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on the details, Centralisation, they've done it with the health system. Today I'm laying out for you a plan to create a truly national public health service. A system that takes health services
1: to the people who need them, no matter who they are or where they live.
0: They're doing it with the Polytechs. Te Pukinga is supposed to be up and running by January the 1st next year, bringing together all of the country's polytechnics, institutes of technology and industry training organisations and our water. The government's steaming ahead with a fundamental change to the way we manage our most precious resource, water. Add to that two other big ones, the Plan for Social Insurance Laws for Workers and the 2020 Public Sector Act, which centralises the public service. It is contentious and highly political. Sparking concern there will be a lack of accountability and small communities will struggle to be heard. That local voice and local input would not Easier. But is centralization wrong? Simon Chappell is director of the Institute of Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University.
1: I think we're seeing two forms of centralization. One, one is centralized solutions, but we're also seeing highly centralized processes that lead to these solutions. So if we think of those big reforms, I've mentioned five. Basically, the political arm of government are coming to the table with a solution to a problem that they've identified. And that centralisation means that they've been particularly poor at looking at ranges of plausible alternatives to the particular solutions they've chosen, but also... They've been very centralised in the sense they've not particularly been good at a process of consulting the public with an open mind. And and I think that that's one of the reasons why in all of those cases we're seeing a public disquiet or, or public pushback.
0: Are you critical of
1: the centralisation policy? No, I'm I'm not wanting to jump to a conclusion of good or bad, and it may be good in some areas and bad in others, is the other caveat I'd want to put in. What, what I am saying is that we have a process by which we decide what problems are and what the range of solutions are, where one party, which is effectively the government has already decided on solutions very early on in the process so that there's a closed mind going on. So uh, that I'm very critical of the centralised and closed-minded processes that have been chosen for all of these major reforms. Right. We're looking at, in every case at big, expensive, consequential and very difficult to reverse decisions. Now, if you're making big expensive and difficult to reverse decisions you should make those in a very careful and deliberate way with a pretty high degree of non-partisanship and i think that public policy imperative is running into the fact we have the first past the post government who knows that it's not going to be you know it's it's going to be much more difficult to change things and they have an agenda where they perceive, I suspect, they have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to get that agenda through. I am very critical of that.
0: Right. The health reform is already in place, Mm -hmm. so that can't be changed. But for example, Three Waters seems to probably be the most controversial, the thing that people are, are really up in arms about, and, and councils are so divided over. Mm-hmm. How should that have been? handled better?
1: Well, the way that governments need to handle consultation processes is is by remaining as cognitively open for as long as possible. And the reason, I think, for running open processes where solutions are not predetermined is twofold. Mm. First of all, it brings people along with you because they feel that they're genuinely being listened to and you you haven't got their hackles up. The second advantage of running more open processes is often you acquire information that you don't have and you consequently make better decisions. And I think a third reason for running more open processes is that you enhance public trust more generally in the democratic environment. So for all of those reasons, I would have tried to avoid cognitive closure and, and, and in all these cases, I think there has been a great degree of cognitive closure. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is, is, is the, the, the brutal reality of you know, the raw power of having an absolute majority in Parliament and you know, the once in a lifetime opportunity with your hands on the levers to, to move the country in a direction that you think is best.
0: Which I think is, is the argument that Andrew Little has put up for centralising the, the health system. Together, we
1: have an opportunity to make a once-in-a-lifetime change, to put in place a new
2: system and to improve the health of this and future generations.
0: This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for fixing something that hasn't been working well.
1: Yeah, and, and look, no human institution ever works well. I mean, one of the challenges with these, these sorts of decisions is, is you know, what you'd call the evaluation problem. How do you know what you've done has made things better than the plausible range of alternatives? And, and that's a really, epistemologically, is a really difficult question to answer. And of course, when you're in that zone, ideology plays an important role. It, it's your beliefs about what's best as opposed to evidence that we can both agree on. Uh, that shows a particular way is best. So, so there are genuine challenges there.
0: And tell me about that ideology. What is the thinking behind this?
1: Well, it's based effectively on several notions. First of all, it's a simple scale economies thing. If, if you get rid of 20 district health boards there are a lot of centralized functions like HR and IT that potentially you can get scale economies from you remove elements of inequity between different regions that have no rhyme nor reason and that gets rid of the postcode lottery where the type of treatment you get is determined by where you live it's also based, I think, on a belief that if we can think of these as hierarchies, bureaucracies are hierarchies, and, and fundamentally they're based on 18th century military organisations where you have a pyramidal structure with you know, people reporting to people, reporting to fewer people until you get to the person at the top. So they're based on a belief that organising things bureaucratically according to lines of command is, is an effective way of assuring a common, high-quality outcome at the bottom. And obviously, you, you can coordinate in a variety of different ways, and, and, and centralization reflects a belief that hierarchy is an efficient and effective way of coordination.
0: An example of Uh, Centralisation, maybe not national centralisation, but but Auckland super city, that's a centralisation example, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And and we have seen, if you look at the longest wave of history, a movement toward amalgamation at a local body level.
0: And that brings us back to Simon's time growing up in Devonport and what happened when the borough council was scrapped.
1: Oh, there was a very strong feelings about the loss of of the council. I guess local communities are defined by all sorts of things, including, you know, the provision of services at a local level. And that as you remove them, you remove some things that give a local community identity, be it a polytech, be it a district health board or, or whatever it is. You know, they're important things. Now, there may be gains that offset those losses, but you can't deny that that's the way people feel about communities.
0: Is the key thing behind this that it saves money?
1: No, I don't think so. I think the key thing behind all of these is that we've got substantial problems in the health Three waters and vocational education areas and the different sorts of problems and we need to be more effective with the money we currently spend as opposed to we can get the same level of service cheaper. I think the aim is to get better service. The reality is, in the case of the Three Waters, we are going to, regardless of the solution, we are going to have to pay more. Because we've been living off the capital that was built up by um, previous citizens of this country, and we've been eroding a lot of the infrastructure and polluting the environment in a way that's, uh, you know, someone's got to pay for at some point.
0: Yeah. I mean, with Three Waters, I think National has said that they will undo it if they get into power.
1: We would repeal Three Waters reforms as they are today. They do, they're do taking assets out of local control of ratepayers and councils.
0: But how, you're saying once it's in place, it's—it's it's, you can't really.
1: Well, you can. It just becomes a, 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 another complex and costly process. I mean, if I think back for most of my professional life, particularly the early half of it, we were continually reforming the health sector and, and, and throwing all the the cards up in the air to see how they landed. And there are some real challenges. I mean, sectors can get reform fatigue and certainly health had that in the 1990s. So you risk that in the Three Waters area. But if a national led government comes into power, they will need in some way to find a solution for the three waters problems. Those problems are not going to go away.
0: Broken pipes shooting water onto the streets (laughs) and sewage into our seas causing big bills for councils and a heavy cost to public health.
1: Whether the current proposals are the best ones, I'm not qualified to judge. Certainly there will be alternatives to solving those problems. Um, And those alternatives, I think, needed to be more carefully and uh, inclusively considered.
0: What do you make of criticism or concerns that the centralisation means more power to Wellington?
1: I I think it's clearly a risk. I mean, I'm a Wellingtonian of of three decades now, and you realise the world is viewed very differently outside of Wellington. Um, yeah. Pretty quickly. And, you know, there is an understandable suspicion, concern that Wellington knows best and that bureaucracy breeds more bureaucracy. And I think there is some validity to those concerns. <laughs> Having (laughs) seen bureaucracy in action Mm. myself, you know, my experience of of the direction of bureaucracy in the last three decades is it's becoming within itself more centralised. Universities, for example, we had a former Minister of Education and Vice-Chancellor of Massey University, Steve Mahari, talking about changes in the university system in his lifetime. And, And he described the process of being a junior lecturer and just cooking up a course and deciding he wanted to teach it. Now that could not happen today without highly centralised approval in universities. So even within central organisations, I think we've become more centralised and more bureaucratic. So you can understand those concerns.
0: If you think local bodies are slowly being stripped of power and voice, local government New Zealand President Stuart Crosby tells a story that might make you think again. It's about Waitaki District Council.
2: That identified uh, a gap in, that, in their health services. So they actually built their own hospital. Then they followed up by finding a gap in uh, supporting homes for, for elderly. So they built their own retirement village. And then, of course, we heard about the the COVID experience, um, which taught us to act quickly and act locally in food delivery. For example, when we went into uh, into lockdown, you know, many people couldn't access food. So, local communities didn't wait for the government to design some kind of structure or system. They just went straight into it, like within twenty four hours. And then in the vaccination space, of course, you know, many locals were distrustful of um, government systems. And so it was up to the locals, you know, to rebuild that trust, uh, to encourage people to get vaccinated. So those are just some examples where uh, you can, in a way, act nationally on behalf of uh, national policies, but you can act locally in terms of their delivery.
0: One of the things that has been raised by, for example, Three Waters is that this points to a loss of the local voice and a loss of transparency. But are you saying there that actually there's a lot of ways that local government can still play a big role in in the local community?
2: Uh, Absolutely. You know, my, my personal vision would be that there should be seamless Uh, delivery from central government through to regional government to local government to community. At the moment, I think New Zealand has created a whole lot of silos. So the government do their thing, local government does their thing, and often community organisations do their thing as well, uh, where there is a huge opportunity moving forward uh, for people to give up their power and control, and I'm talking about particularly government and local government, uh, and have trust and uh, communities to be able to deliver uh, their needs uh, their way in a far better and more effective and efficient manner. And that does require changes in trust.
0: In what areas are you talking about there?
2: Well, if we looked at some of the basics, you know, like housing, for example, before 1989, you know, local government was heavily involved in the provision of social housing. Um, and then things changed. Uh, many councils sold off their housing. Uh, Some still retain it, particularly in the the retirement village space. But if you look at the housing issue now, particularly affordable housing and social housing, there's a whole system failure. It's not just a government failure or council failure or land requirement failure, regulation, building material failure. It's all of those combined as a system failure. So, we get back to that point about subsidiarity, where uh, the issues of housing, for example, particularly in affordable and in the social housing space, would be uh, best dealt with at the local level by locals, uh, providing they're you know, given the resources to do it. Now, the new health system, of course, is uh, quite interesting. It has a centralized system a delivery right down to the local level as well, yet to be tested, of course.
0: You sound quite optimistic.
2: There is a place for centralisation, but the best outcomes are really at the local level. So yes, at the moment there is deep concern, and Local Government New Zealand has deep concern about what's being proposed, and we've been pushing back constantly. And if you look at Two of the main uh, current reforms, Three waters, for example, we've constantly pushed back on that local voice. Where is the accountability and responsibility of these very big entities to the small communities? You know, where is the service delivery um, prospects going to lie in terms of fixing things when they break or creating a new infrastructure? And the issue with the three waters is, of course, the design's not finished. You know, we've got one bill, there's another bill coming, and then there's economic regulation coming uh, later. So we haven't seen the full picture. And so there is a lot of distrust in the current proposal of the government and a lot of pushback.
0: Do you feel like you're being listened to?
2: It's variable. It's been hard yards in the free waters space because the, the government's model, and I stress it's the government's model, has been very much focused on these four large entities.
0: Four new regional groups made up of 50-50 council and mana whenua members will act as overseer. They'll appoint members to four entity boards who will then run our water services. In the end though, Simon, I mean, we're a country of five million people. We're the size of a small city on global standards. Can we treat it that way?
1: Again, the answer is yes or no. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, if you're thinking about Three Waters, for example, I think Three Waters, the case for some sort of more centralised solution is is fairly strong. I mean, 67 local bodies dealing with water, uh, that uh, you know, and some involving very, very small populations. So, I'm down the horses for courses thing. Yes, we are a small country, but you know we've got some really interesting and, and, and big problems at a, at a local body level again because of uh, you know shifts in the way society's working, which push you in your five million direction. I mean, there's very little fourth estate oversight of local body politics anymore because the media model... There is broken. Very few people actually vote in local body politics because they don't see there being a lot of power at a local body level. And yet we're taking power away from local bodies. So again, are we hastening the demise of local body politics in the centralisation process? Is it going to further? Pull people out of engaging in that process uh, you know the, there's a there 's a huge range of big questions here for which there aren 't easy answers. We do need local politics every country needs local politics um, how much uh, that 's a really big philosophical question that we should be discussing. What should their powers be? how should they run? how can they work in a way that creates and reinforces local communities, which are so important.
0: That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4 RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Simon Chappell and Stuart Crosby. Mā te wa.